Hello and welcome to ABB Decoded, the podcast that tries to press pause on our fast-moving lives and make sense of the technology and trends that are shaping our world. I'm your host, Anthony Rowlinson, and we're joined for this episode by Jeff Dodds, who is the new CEO of Formula E. Jeff began his role last May and quickly set about raising the profile of the ABB FIA Formula E World Championship, which is the world's only all-electric single-seat motor racing series. And with the championship about to begin its 10th season, Jeff outlines his vision for its future and explains why electric motorsport has never been more relevant to the global e-mobility transition. The goal, he says, is to make lots and lots of noise around a series powered by quiet electric motors. Let's hear how he plans to do just that. All right, Jeff, uh, thank you very much for joining this episode. You're very welcome. ABB Decoded. If we could start with the, the obvious question, if you could just say uh, who you are and uh, what it is you do. So Jeff Dodds, I'm the uh, newly minted, I guess you'd say, five months in, chief exec of Formula E. Excellent. Well, we'll start there, actually. Um, in the fact that you're new to the job, you've been, I, I had six months, but it's five. So what have you learned in that time? It's five months, but they're like dog years. So the five months feels like about 10 years, I think. Uh, what have I learned in five months? Well, so um, I've been very lucky. So I started before the season ended. We're at the um, uh, we're off season at the moment. So we finished season nine uh, back in July. We'll start the next season, season 10 in January. Uh, but I started in June. So I was lucky enough to get to some races. I went to Indonesia, uh, to Jakarta. I went to Portland in the US, uh, to Rome and to London. Um, so I was lucky enough to get a flavor of the product. Um, I've met all of our partners, all of our manufacturers, all of our teams, uh, all of our sponsors, uh, multiple opportunities to, to, to meet up and speak to the team here. About 250 odd people work at uh, Formula E. So I would say it's been a blend of being curious, trying to understand how the business works, a little bit about the background of the business, where we are, the existing plans, um, get a flavour from people about what they think goes really well at the moment and where they think we can make improvements. Um, but then, of course, you've got, to run a day, you've got a day job as well. You've got to run a business. So I'm being curious, trying to learn at the same time as getting stuck into making the day-to-day decisions set us up for, uh, for season 10. So it's been pretty full on. I think also I've spent... I dread to think what my um, Avios points look like uh, over the last five months because a lot of our partners, as you know, are in Europe. They're in around the world. We're racing in... Tokyo next year, we're racing in China, so I'm on a plane quite a bit, meeting our partners and, and understanding a bit more about, about them as well. And I, you mentioned balancing uh, learning with running the business. How, yeah. do you, how have you managed to do that? How do you get that balance? Well, you can't avoid running the business. So every day, you know, there are, there are priorities and, and decisions we have to take. Um, I think the two go hand in hand, don't they? So there's some things that are more formal learning. So spending the time to to talk to partners about their history with the with the brand um uh, finding out about the sporting regulations so how does the how does the race series actually run and what are the what are the differences between formula e and other motorsports and understanding the product really well so they're i guess they're more formal but most of it happens on the job so when we're talking about calendar for example um we're making decisions on what calendar we do we submit to the fia and to try and get them to approve it and working with our board so I guess I'm learning that process as I go. So learning by doing. And uh, what was your brief on day one? <laughs> or, or I guess, you know, in the build-up to taking the job, what, was, yeah. what were you Don't screw it to- up. <laughs> that was kind of the brief. Um, no, look, the, so the brief was really good. So the brief was, um, first of all, take the time you need 
to fully understand the business properly. So don't feel the need to rush in and, and make any decisions quickly. Take the time you need. Um, but take the time you need to be able to set this business up for you know, exponential and continued growth. So we are a business that's nine years old. Um, we're nine years old in an industry where most of our peers are, or competitors are 70 to 100 years old. If you compare, you know, Formula One and MotoGP and IndyCar and NASCAR and World Endurance Championship. Um, so we're, we're in our infancy, which means we hopefully have many, many, many years of growth ahead of us. Um, so get stuck in, um, learn the business, meet the people, understand the business, um, establish a foundation or a strong platform to make sure we max out our growth potential. And that, that's been the brief. And it, it is uh, growth rather than thriving, as it were. So there is a, a yeah. specific brief to grow, to grow the brand. And to yeah, completely. Look, I have a simple, in my experience of business, um, there are two types of business. There, there are those that are spiraling up and those that are spiraling down. And, and anyone that's standing still is just about to start spiraling down normally. So, um, no, I think I, I want to work in a growth business. Um, we're, we're nine years old. We've got some fantastic investors that sit behind us. Very big. We may talk about that later. Very big investors. Um, they're interested in, they think this is a growth industry. They think we're a growth business. Uh, and therefore, the remit is very clearly to, to grow. Excellent. And it's a very simple question, but probably a very hard answer. How do you grow the business? Oh, well, well, it, it, it's a complicated answer because there are many ways to grow a business. The, the beauty of a business that's nine years old um, is that very few of the growth levers have been pulled because you're establishing yourself. So if I look at our business, um, you know, we, we're a world championship but we only race in, in 11 or 12 different parts of the world. So one way you can grow is to have more races in more different places. Um, the technology of our racing series is is on a very steep curve in terms of innovation. So another way you can grow is by product improvement. Well, our product is getting faster every year and the, and the range of the battery is extending uh, rapidly as well. So the product's getting better. Um, you can grow through media coverage. So we have media relationships, but we, you know, we're a nine-year-old business, so we don't have media relationships all around the world. So we can do that. Um, we saw with Formula One the incredible bounce they got off of things like Drive to Survive uh, on Netflix. We haven't launched a global streaming product yet, so we don't have a product out there to attract a different type of customer base or audience. Um, so we can do that. Um, bring on more, more sponsors, more partners. Um, so look, everywhere I look, there's opportunities for growth. Um, I think it's picking the right ones. Because we we are a two hundred and I think I said two hundred and fifty roughly person organisation, so we don't have the number of people to rush off and pull all those growth levers at once. And if they did, we couldn't cope with it. So it's picking which ones to pull first and making sure we do that to the best of our ability. And you mentioned earlier that uh, one of the things you've tasked yourself with is, is finding Formula E's point of difference. Yeah. What do you think those are? What what is its uh, point of difference? Or what are the the points of difference? Anthony, there are so many. Um, and I think, so I'm a motorsport fan, so I have been all my life, love automotive, uh, love motorsport. Um, and I'd watched Formula E. So, you know, I was familiar with the product. I'd been with my son to watch races. We've been to New York to watch races. So I followed it and I follow Formula One and I follow MotoGP and I, you know, I, I love motorsport. Um, but it's only really when you get deep into it that you really understand just how many differences there are. So, you know, for a start, the races are much shorter. They're, they're between 45 minutes and an hour or so, so they're shorter races. Um, obviously, the cars are all electric. 
Um, so there's zero emissions. So we've been net zero uh, from day zero. Um, there are uh, funky things we do during the race. So um, things like um, uh, we have attack zones where you can drive through it and get an incremental boost on the power of the car, 50 kilowatt boost in power, um, which strategically makes it much more different. Uh, we race uh, on a mixture of street circuits and, and some fixed circuits, but we largely take the circus to town. So we turn up in a location. So Tokyo next year, great example, will be the first race series that's ever raced in the city center of Tokyo. We turn up there, we build a racetrack. You know, we build a racetrack that's roughly two kilometers in length in the middle of a, of a metropolitan area, in the middle of a city, so that we can expose the product to new people. Um, so whilst it's a car, and it's a, a, an incredible racing driver driving that car. It's over a shorter track for a shorter period, often in a, in a street, um, uh, generating zero emissions. So it's a, it's a very different product. And you mentioned, obviously, the, the all-electric nature of yeah. the car and the series. Is that e-mobility connection uh, still fundamental to the championship and, and as, as relevant as ever to like you know the communications around the championship? I would say um, not only as relevant as ever, but growing in relevance every day. And the reason I say that is if you, I'll get the numbers slightly wrong here, so uh, I hope nobody goes and fact checks me perfectly, but when the founder of the series, a gentleman called Alejandro Agag, um, uh, conceived the idea for Formula E and launched it, I think that year there were probably 300,000 electric vehicles sold around the world. Um, if, if my maths are right, I think last year there was about 10 million electric vehicles sold around the world, and it's growing by roughly 20% a year. So, you know, we are we are on a very steep growth curve for electrification. Um, now, I know some countries are changing their timing. On uh, we're sitting here doing this podcast in the UK, and they've changed their timing. I think from 2030, 2035, in terms of the phasing out of um, of non-electric vehicles for for the sale of new cars. But largely, over the next decade, you know, all cars sold around the world will move away from internal combustion engine to alternative fuel and, and predominantly electric. Um, so this is our time. So the, the window is wide open. You know, we have this tailwind of electrification that's driving us along um, and we have to make the most of it. And, and so when I look at that, you know, we've, we've scratched the surface of electrification on vehicles so far. Um, the next 10 years are incredibly exciting. So, so the relevance of e-mobility is getting stronger and stronger. And do you have to change the approach slightly? Because perhaps at the start, it was about convincing people that mm -hmm. electric vehicles are just viable. Yeah. Now, probably that argument's already been concluded because clearly they are, but yeah. where do you shift the focus? What, what's the sort of uh, drive that you make through the perception of the championship? What are you trying to show people now? Yeah, and I think, they're, I think it's a great question and, and they're different things. So I think for people wanting to watch the racing, that's different. So I think there are many people that have come in to watch electric racing and just love it for what it is, the sport. So the sport of electric racing is, if you looked at us and compared us to other series, so highly competitive. So at the end of the, uh, the last season, on the very last day, as we went into London, I think there were still four drivers conceivably that could win the Drivers' Championship. So it's highly competitive racing, but it's not internal combustion engine. And there are motorsports fans out there that have grown up on, on Formula One and, and the roar of the loud engine car and the smell of that, um, and they love it. So not everybody will be convinced that watching electric cars race is for them. Um, my view on that, by the way, is there's so many new people coming into racing that don't really know any different. We focus on them. So we focus on providing a compelling racing series for them. So the first people we have to convince is come and watch the race because when you watch it, 
you'll be super impressed. These cars are lightning fast. They're producing zero emissions. You can bring your family because it's nice and quiet. You can talk to each other and you can hear stuff. You don't always leave with a headache. Um, and you're going to see some amazingly competitive racing with some of the best drivers on the planet racing those cars. Then I think the other point you make is about the, perhaps what used to be a scepticism around the technology of electrification. And remember, there are many, many people that still haven't personally driven an electric vehicle because they haven't had that opportunity. Um, I've driven an electric vehicle for a very long time, and I still remember that first wave of, hang on a minute, A, this is really fast, <laughs> so that surprises me. Um, it's really comfortable, it's really quiet, and any range anxiety I might have had disappears quite quickly when I realise I could almost do an entire week on one charge going to and from work, and then the process of recharging it is actually very, very straightforward. And I think what our racing series does is not only provides people with some amazing entertainment to watch cars racing, but it's also providing the reassurance because what they get to see is electric-only technology propelling incredibly fast cars silently, and they're able to race at those speeds for nearly an hour. So then when you jump in your own electric car and you're worried about, oh, I'm going to go and see my parents this weekend, am I going to get there and back? And I think it removes a lot of the anxiety because that reassurance level is there of watching these cars race at the absolute optimum level. And is it important, therefore, that you have partners like ABB, if I can, if I can just yeah. throw that one in, yeah. um, who are deeply involved in electrification and yeah. that's fundamental to our business? Yeah, look, and I think ABB, obviously... The clues in the title, you know, we're the ABB, FIA, Formula E World Championship. So so they are our title partner. Um, uh, and we love having them involved for a number of reasons. But if you look at the, the alignment of the purpose of the two businesses, you know, you, you, when you start to read about ABB as an organization and you realize that they're focused on sustainability, electrification, innovation, e-mobility, uh, amongst many other things, that's what we live for. You know, we, we live to... Um, to showcase the power of electric racing, to, to, to drive and increase the speed of electrification around the world of, of automotive mobility. So there is such a direct link between the two businesses that I think um, for us it's great because we get to partner with somebody who's um, driving the infrastructure development around electrification, making, making sure that as these cars grow and grow and grow, the number on the roads grow and grow and grow, there's the right infrastructure levels there that exist to be able to charge those cars effectively at scale. Um, and at the same token, you know, we, we get to mutually benefit from a growing sport that now has around 350 million fans around the world um, that are showing more and more interest every year in in, in e-mobility. Just like to take a tangent for a moment, mm, if you don't yeah, mind. Yeah, sure. Um, can I ask you about your your work as a non-executive director for the uh, the department for levelling up? That's, that's I need a to, very, very unusual. That is a tangent. Your, your CV. <laughs> it's a tangent. I thought you'd have a private investigator on me then. You're going to dig out all those things about me. Nothing like that. Yeah, so um, I guess... My day job is to run Formula E, uh, and I'm very proud to have that job. But I have two additional things I do. So one of the things I do is as a non-exec for the UK government, um, and I'm aligned to the Department of Leveling Up Housing and Communities, and I'll, I will answer your question. The other thing I do is I'm a chair of a charity called The Valuable 500, which is a global disability charity. Um, uh, three, uh, three things incredibly close to my heart. So, you know, commerce, business, uh, sustainability, very close to my heart, and I get to push all those buttons every day at Formula E. Um, I'm incredibly curious about politics and the role of politics and the influence it can have on the, 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 you know, the lives of all of us every day. Uh, so about three years ago, uh, 
I was asked whether I would join as a non-exec for UK government, uh, aligned to that department. And because um, of the my interest in equity and the process of levelling up, um, that was a that was a brilliant opportunity for me. So I took it, and I've had three years of learning a lot more about how government works, how complex government is, uh, and, and the complexity of decision making in government. But also to see the benefits of some of those decisions and how it really impacts people, uh, particularly in local areas through through impact on housing, um, uh, community feeling. Um, and this process of levelling up, trying to level up across the United Kingdom to make sure that you know there's a more equitable approach to investment. So I've absolutely loved that, um, uh, and it it keeps me busy at times because um, uh, there's a, as you can imagine, there's a lot of stuff going on in government all the time. Uh, so it keeps me very busy. I get to work with some other brilliant uh, colleagues who who come from very different um, backgrounds to me. Um, so we're all there for different reasons, but yeah. So I, I have those three different prongs, I guess, to my to my time, and, and love them all for different reasons. Does that work with governments help with some of the conversations you have to have with you know city mayors, for example, when no. you when, when you're no no not at all no completely independent things actually. So and if you think about that, well, when you say does it help? So I think it helps me personally, um, not because there's introductions or you know I get to leverage that in any way at all. What it helps me with is that. I just have a better understanding of of how decisions get made within this government. And of course, we race all over the world, so it's very different. So, you know, the way that the UK government might make a decision would be very different to perhaps um, the US government or perhaps um, the Indonesian government for racing in Jakarta or, um, uh, you know, the Tokyo government for the Tokyo race. Um, but I think having a deeper appreciation of of what's important to governments. So if we go into a city and we're asking them if we can race in their city and asking for their support to put that race on, I think it helps me to understand some of the KPIs that they might be focused on where we can support that. So whether that's education around sustainability or climate change, whether that's driving an eco economic value through the local area and the region, um, uh, introducing the sport to uh, to more people uh, from different backgrounds, uh, engaging the community more openly. We have we have a policy where everywhere we go, we leave a legacy. So we like to leave a positive social legacy where we race. So being able to understand, knowing how important that is to local government. So I think it's helped me to have a better appreciation of what they might be looking for. But it but nothing other than that. They're very different roles for me. Um, and you mentioned earlier the opportunities for growth that the championship has and, yeah. and all the things you say about it, they're mm. positive. Do you think the championship still has some, some weaknesses that you, that you need to address? Of course. I mean, we're, we're a nine-year-old business. So I think any, any business that's nine years old and in its growth phase um, has challenges, challenges of scale. Uh, I also think we're a nine-year-old business that's largely an event and entertainment business that had two years of lockdown and COVID just at the point it was at the peak of its growth. Um, so we've had to recover from COVID. Unfortunately, we have, and we're, we're back on that growth uh, trajectory, but that was a very difficult period for the business. Um, and, and none of us can ignore the fact that we, fortunately, I think we might be coming out the other side, but we've been in a period of economic downturn. So, you know, it, it's been a difficult period for sponsorship and partnership and uh, raising investment out there. I say, fortunately, I get, I get the feeling that we're starting to come out of that. Um, and global conflicts never help in terms of giving people confidence for investment. And, you know, there are other things that people are focused on. So, so I think we, you know, we do have challenges. I, I often say when I'm asked the question, Anthony, you know, when I, when I turned up on day one here and I came out of telco media, I've been in that for, for many years, and I walked into the office here and I sat down in the chair 
and I kind of starting to get myself up to speed with the business, there were two piles. There was the pile of opportunities and here are all the things that we haven't done yet that we think we could and they're really cool. And then there's the pile of here are some of the challenges we're facing into that we need to fix. The opportunity pile was materially higher than the challenge pile. And, and for a chief exec coming into a new business, that's a really wonderful feeling because we all have challenges. Um, and I've come from very mature established industries where sometimes the challenges outweigh the opportunities, but fortunately not here. You mentioned your background. Yeah. Um, if I understand correctly, you spent quite a bit of time in the in the car business, yeah. um, and then latterly in the sort of media, as a media exec yeah. in telecoms. Yeah. So can you can you tell me a bit about those two things and what you learned there? Yeah. How that informs what your role is now? Yeah. So I had about half my career in automotive. I worked uh, for Volvo when they were owned by Ford Motor Company, uh, and then I subsequently worked for Honda. And Honda, obviously, the, the giant Japanese auto manufacturer. Um, and I was lucky enough in that business to work across all of their products effectively. So whether that was a, a car, power boats, marine engines, um, uh, generators, lawn mowers. Um, but also they were, you know, they were a very, very active business in motorsport. So they had a Formula One team with BAR Honda, uh, Jensen Button, Rubens Barrichello were the drivers at the time, uh, MotoGP teams, World Superbike teams, Formula Four stroke powerboat teams. They were in everything, uh, which was amazing for me because I'm a, I'm a motorsport nut. So, so in terms of what grounding did that give me? Well, working in automotive and working around motorsport for a long time is a fantastic grounding for working in, in a business like Formula E. Um, and then latterly, yeah, media and telco. So I worked for Virgin for a very long time. So for Virgin Media, I joined there just after the business had been formed. I was there through to the point we sold that business to a, a big American company called Liberty Global, um, who are our largest shareholder, incidentally, in Formula E. Uh, and then I was there when we merged that business with uh, uh, O2 in the UK, so part of the Telefonica organization, now a, a 50-50 JV with Telefonica and Liberty Global. Um, so over that period of time, you know, I, I did a lot of work around media, generating noise. So uh, in the media industry, it's all about fan base, growth in audience, generating, uh, when I say generating noise, I mean kind of noise and interest in the business. All of that incredibly helpful for a sports entertainment business like ours. Um, but also they're highly commercial businesses. So just the rigor of under, understanding how businesses are funded, the importance of revenue growth, um, uh, cost management, all of the discipline you get of running a big, uh, big business is incredibly important here because cost discipline and, and growth in revenue is very important for the oxygen of a small business. And then hopefully in time we go from being a small business to a big one uh, and that all stays relevant. So yeah, I, I guess you could say almost the perfect grounding for for this role you know working in entertainment working in media working in automotive huge sport fan very focused on sustainability and equity so um yeah this felt like a this one had been written for me i think nice and obviously as ceo you're you're in a leadership position yeah what, what does leadership mean to you yeah that is um that's a quite, we talk a lot about leadership now, don't we? There's a, there's a lot of people uh, telling us how we should lead and how we shouldn't lead. Um, the, so the first thing I would say is, for me, leadership is incredibly, it's an authentic thing. So um, there are lots of people talking about how leaders should lead and how they shouldn't lead. But for me, it's really important you lead in an authentic way, which means I, I don't expect to be different in this building talking to my team here versus talking to uh, our partners versus walking home in the evening through the door and how I interact with my family. I don't want to be multiple people. So leadership for me is a very authentic thing. Um, 
the two facets of leadership that are incredibly important to me. The first is for the 250 people that work here or our broader ecosystem that work with us is trying to create an environment here where everyone can realize their potential, whatever that is. So whatever their potential allows them to do and whatever their ambition is to try and provide a supportive environment where A, people feel they can turn up and they belong and B, that they're in an environment where they can realize their ambitions. Um, so that's really important for me. And then from a personal perspective, um, I'm at my best when I'm learning new things. Um, and uh, now I have the privilege of having been here for not very long. So every day is a school day for me. But I think leadership for me is about curiosity. It's about listening a lot. It's about learning a lot and and understanding how to make the right decisions for the business, which rarely come from one person. They come from the broader business. The best decisions come from the business. So it's that balance for me of making sure I'm somewhere where I can listen and learn um, and making sure I can help create an environment where people can thrive. That's that's what it is for me. Okay, great. And uh, last question. Mm. It really is. Um, yeah, that's fine. Go as long as you like. Um, where do you see the championship in five years? Well, bigger. Bigger, better, faster. Um, so when I arrived, Anthony, we very quickly, I went through with the team here, um, my leadership team, um, what are our top priorities to, to grow the business? So how will we, in five years' time, when we look back on our tenure, how will we judge whether we've done a good job or, or, or a poor job? And we identified five strategic territories here. And the, ter the territories were, and I'll, uh, I'll probably forget them as I go now, I don't have in front of me, but the territories were to be the noisiest, so to create uh, more noise, more social noise, more digital noise, just to be very noisy from an interest point of view, people talking about us. Uh, to be the fastest, now, partly to have the fastest cars, uh, so fastest accelerating cars in motorsport, uh, but also to be the fastest growing, so in terms of fan base growth and audience growth. Uh, to be the most sustainable. We're net zero from day zero. We wear that crown incredibly proudly, uh, rated the number one sport for ESG in the world. That's not something we want to give up, but it's also not something we take for granted. So even though we do a good job for sustainability, uh, we want to lead the way and continually challenge ourselves to get better and better and better. Uh, the most exciting. So in motorsport, you can have everything, but if the racing's not exciting, um, it puts your audience at jeopardy because people turn up to watch sport because there's lots of jeopardy and it's compelling and the results unknown and there's there's high drama and if you haven't got that i think it's difficult to grow the business so we want to be the most exciting uh, the most innovative as well so we're on a technology curve and abb are part of that as well and, and working very closely with us and you're on your own technology curve that we are we're in a growth technology industry which is electrification and e-mobility is is a technology that's um, that's developing rapidly um, and therefore we want to be at the cutting edge of technology uh, and my hope is that when you add all those things together uh, we become the most valuable which is the fastest growing motorsport or you could argue any sport um, if it wasn't for those pesky sports like paddle and uh, and uh, um, pickleball making it difficult for us but you know the, the fastest growing in value in terms of sports around the world um, if you look to what that means in numbers so you know I would want I don't know, four out of 10 people in the world to know who we are and to understand what Formula E is. Um, I'll want uh, over half a billion fans around the world. Uh, I want to be second only to Formula One in terms of fan base and, uh, and reach. Um, 
So we have we have aggressive ambitions, um, but there's nothing I've seen or not seen since I arrived here five months ago that would lead me to believe those those ambitions, however lofty they are, are not within our grasp. That's brilliant. Thank you very much. No, sir. my absolute pleasure. Thanks, thanks for coming for, to talk to me. No, thanks for such Great. an open conversation. It was really Great. good fun. Thanks, Anthony. Cheers. And with those lofty ambitions top of mind, that's where we'll leave this episode of ABB Decoded. But if you're keen to find out more about the championship, you can follow the season online, across social media and on broadcast TV. To learn more about ABB, electrification and our sustainability goals, go to new.abb.com. If you've enjoyed the conversation, don't forget to like, share and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time.